Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It is the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. All right, so now, let's get wall to wall, treetop tall. Back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, how do you celebrate 300 episodes? Oh, wow, man. I guess you'd just say, uh, darn, I'm glad to be here. You know? <laughs> wow, that's uh, quite a while, man. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Didn't think we were going to get there for 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 a while, uh, never. I don't think I ever dreamed we'd be doing that. So I remember when you and I were sitting in the woods on my back porch, and you were talking about starting a podcast. And I was like, "Wow, okay, that would be cool." I had no idea. I bet you had no idea you would still be doing this thing six, almost six years later. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is just outrageous, but uh, but I, I like it. I, I enjoy it, uh, and it uh, keeps me busy. And uh, also, uh, you know, it's a great way to reminisce, I guess, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you, you've always talked about writing a book. You've already written one novel, Brutus, of course, but you've always talked about writing a book about wrestling. And maybe this is just the red or oral version of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> I think that's what it is, actually, Dave. I yeah. think this is, uh, you know, this is the beginning of a book. Uh, and, uh, you know... Uh, and I don't have to, I won't have to do much research. I don't get <laughs> not on the first part anyway. Exactly. So. Hey, listen, I tell you, wrestling fans all over the world are really enjoying these stud casts. Congratulations, by the way. I mean, again, you've been telling weekly for almost six years, reached another milestone now, 300 episodes that you've been telling this unique story of your family's life really from the early 1900s as the largest and one of the oldest families in professional wrestling. Truly, absolutely remarkable. We really love the ride every week. So how do you feel about this this 300th? Have you, is, have you really thought about it and have much time to? No, not really, to be honest with you. you know, uh, but, uh, you know, I never thought it like I, like I was about to say. You know, when I did that first stud cast, man, we were – on your back porch, uh, that was about the time I started the first one. Yeah. I was only planning to tell a few stories about my grandfather starting back in 1902 and yeah. uh, with him when, when he was born. And, uh, 
we might talk about the, you know, the tough life he had growing up and how he got into wrestling. And that's about all I, all I thought that might happen here, man. <laughs> a little storytelling that turned into all this. And listen, I really love those first five studcasts because when you were talking about it, I thought I got to hear what this is going to be like. Roy's story is absolutely amazing. And so is all of your family members since no doubt now, 300 episodes later, you're into 1979 in your career. For me, that was kind of a sweet spot in wrestling for me as a fan, too, as a, as a younger guy. So I don't know if all the listeners are really aware, but every studcast, every single one ever done is on your website. You can go there right now, listen to episode, start with episode one if you want to. It's going to take you 300 hours to catch up where we are today. But listen, it's all there at tnstud.com tnstud.com so listen what you've done so far in these studcasts maybe the best historical account of professional wrestling ever done i can't think of anybody anywhere anybody else that is doing exactly what you're doing yeah i don't believe there is probably anybody doing that and uh, and i don't know man there's thousands of books out there and historical <laughs> documents out there but uh, i tell you what i'm well on my way to recording the entire history of the oldest and the largest professional wrestling family ever that's for sure and i'm assuming that is why you called this one this episode number 300 is called my life in 1979 at a turning point yeah you know it's it's, it's very fitting man that we are on studcast number 300 uh, that number is you know a turning point uh, you know the the basic number of 300 is a turning point and when i look back uh, so was my life at that time in 1979. <laughs> I'd accomplished a great deal for a young guy. Uh, at that point, I'd started my first and then my second wrestling companies. I was not only the youngest member of the National Wrestling Alliance uh, in its history, but the only member to own two territories. So I had a great business relationship wow. with the NWA president, Sam Muchnick who I'd wrestled for in 1973 and 1974 in his St. Louis territory. I also had, and uh, this is a guy that we had just talked about lately and is really highly involved. I also had a great business relationship with the NWA champion, Harley Race. And even and more important to me, though, was I had a great personal relationship with both of them. Uh, I really, really liked that fact. Wow. Um, not only did I have two territories, but both of them had basically uh, become very successful. The oldest one, southeastern Knoxville, in just over five years. It, it was at this, at this point in 1979, recognized by many as the best small territory in the history of wrestling, <laughs> professional wrestling. And the new one, uh, southeastern Gulf Coast, less than two years old, had rose basically from the ashes of a dead territory. And with the help of some tremendous young stars and great wrestlers, uh, was on his way to making history as well. All of this, and Dave, I, I was only 31 years old, man. Wow. I was going to say you'd barely passed 30 years of age by that time. And when you came in to the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory, I was a part of that. And it was like, wow, what is going on? Who is this guy? And it didn't take long before we realized who this guy was. Listen, I don't think many people know or even consider that fact that at barely 30 years of age, you were 31, as you said, in just over five years as a promoter and owner, you had accomplished so many things. Well, you know, I, you know, it, it, it sounds almost too good to be true, Dave. 
and and it was. <laughs> that's the crazy part here, and that's what this is all about. This stud cast number three hundred. It was not just a turning point as a number, but it's also a turning point in my life in June of 1979. Uh, crazy, but uh, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> so in today's 300 episode, we're going to open the door, man, to the biggest heartbreak of my wrestling career. We're going to talk uh, we, uh, again, and we're getting in more depth and getting further along here. We're going to talk about that the, the heartbreak in my career, the Knoxville War. And today we're going to begin the journey where I finally found out what was happening, what was coming, what was in the future. And uh, that had, that had been in the works for a long time. Uh, this this uh, intrigue and all these things going on behind my back, I was able to find out, and we'll talk about it in this episode. Well, this, I, I think this is the one we've all been waiting for, Ryan. Last studcast ended with you firing Bob Roop, your Knoxville booker, and giving him a two-week notice to leave the territory. It was on the same day as you were wrestling Harley Race in a Texas death match, of all things, a match you described beautifully in the last studcast, by the way. You said there was another surprise coming in this studcast. So so what was the surprise? Are you going to spill it now? Yeah, well, yeah. After I fired Bob, man, uh, uh, he, uh, he went back to his apartment. And um, we, he had been living, uh, oddly enough, with Dick Slater. Uh, and uh, Slater had been to Japan about uh, six weeks uh, earlier than uh, within this time frame. And uh, when he came back, he came back, he started living with Roop again. And uh, so Roop went back, and obviously he was upset about being fired. And uh, he sat down with Dick Slater and told him everything, everything that was going on all their plans. So, uh, and Slater at this point, he knew absolutely nothing about any of it until that day, <laughs> until Roop went and told him. Mm -hmm. So, but the bad thing for Roop is he wasn't aware that Dick Slater and I had been best friends for nine years. <laughs> yes. As and, evidenced by these, these stud casts, you've been, you've been talking about that relationship for a while. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, you know, we'd basically been friends since November of 1970, nine years earlier. Uh, the first week I arrived in the Florida Territory, uh, I met Dick Slater. Uh, Dick was best friends with Mike Graham. Mike Graham's dad was Eddie Graham, known the Territory. And Mike and uh, Dick were in high school together. And that's where Slater, along with uh, some training that I did with him, became a wrestler in the early 1970s. So Dick Slater was very honest. He was an extremely honest guy and a loyal friend, obviously, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and one of the most dangerous men on the planet. <laughs> I, gotta, I better throw that in, too. I mean, <laughs> you know, he did have uh, an attribute there that, you know, I knew nobody else that was better than Dick Slater, I don't believe. Sure. Uh, and as soon as Ruth told him the entire plan, Slater got in his car and he drove straight to my house and he <laughs> sat down and told me everything, you know? So, wow. so I basically fired Bob Roop as the Southeastern Knoxville booker. And the same day I learned everything that was going on from my best friend, Dick Slater. Wow. So you found out, you finally found out everything. And on the same day that you were going to be wrestling Harley race in a Texas death match, so I'm sure Roop, since he told Dick Slater everything, must have told his four future partners that he had been fired. 
dealing with all of this, it must have been a pretty stressful night for you at the matches. Plus, again, Harley Race, the baddest man on God's green earth, the next night in the Gulf Coast territory. So how did you handle all that? Well, before I left for that Gulf Coast match, I, I had obviously a lot to take care of, man. Uh, I was going to have to hire a new booker. I was going to have to set up that night's card with the booker because I'd already fired my present booker. Uh, I was going to be uh, putting together the TV show for two days later that uh, was going to promote the next Friday night, the June 1st, 1979 Coliseum event. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was going to have to do all of that before I left town. So are you saying you did all of that in one afternoon? I did. Uh, yes, basically, I did all that in one afternoon. Wow. So, so what I did is, uh, and the way, I, way, it, way it happened is, you know, Slater and I such, had a, such a great relationship. He'd been in the business for almost nine years. Uh, he had been all over the world wrestling. He had seen everything. He had done it all. And uh, so I just said, uh, Bob, you know, uh, Dick, uh, I, I'm going to, why don't I just uh, make you the my booker? Because wow. I got to had to have a booker anyway. Right, so he's, right. He's told me about this. And I said, I, I, I'm going to make you the booker, man. So I told him, you know, he was going to be my booker. And uh, right then we sat down. He was there anyway. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the matches for that night, that coming night, uh, what we're going to do on that night. We talked about the entire TV show for two days later. And two days later, he was going to be handling the TV. So Slater went back to Roop's apartment acting as if nothing had happened. <laughs> he didn't want to let Roop know. There was no need to let Roop know, right? <laughs> Well, finally, man, I had the upper hand. I now knew what was going on. And the root troop, I think I'm going to start calling that group, <laughs> didn't know. They didn't know that I knew anything. Wow. So, okay. So, and maybe this is a side note. Dick Slater had been in the business so long. Not just anybody could be a booker, but you had plenty of confidence that he could. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, he had he had seen everything. He he handled finishes uh, in his own matches at this mm -hmm. point, nine years in, and he could handle finishes in other matches. Wow. And I thought he was uh, very qualified. All right. So, what happened at the Coliseum that night? I know a lot was building up to this point. Well, you know, I kind of gathered everybody in the crew up as soon as I got there. Uh, and got them all together. And the Coliseum had two huge dressing rooms, one for the baby faces, one for the heels. I brought them all into the baby face dressing room, except for Harley. You know, I didn't mention to Harley, mm -hmm. you know, uh, didn't have Harley in the meeting. was no need to. Uh, and the first thing I did, and uh, Bob Roop's in that room too, along with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I told everybody that Bob Roop's no longer the booker here, that he's being replaced immediately by Dick Slater. And uh, Dick acted as though he was surprised. Ooh. You know, as, as surprised as everybody else was to, to hear that Dick had been slipped right into Bob Roop's spot. Okay, so he, you had already verbally given, given Roop his two-week notice. So did Roop and his troop, did they wrestle as scheduled for that night? Yeah. You know, they were unaware that I knew what was going on. Hmm. So, you know, they, 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 they didn't, they didn't uh, jump to do anything. I'm sure they were going to wait and go back and talk about it after the night was over. Like, yeah. wow, what do we do, man? So they only knew 
that I had fired Rube, uh, mm -hmm. his buddies and uh, everybody in the crew. So I flew out to Alabama the next day as I was, uh, you know, going to wrestle Harley in a, in a world title match that night in Dothan. So then uh, I also flew back to Knoxville on the Saturday morning after the Dothan matches because I wanted to make sure that Dick Slater didn't have a problem with these guys at the TV that day. Mm. You know, I wanted him to have backup, man, just in case that uh, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And th at this point, they didn't know what was going to happen. You want to talk about kind of peeling the curtain back and seeing what's behind and revealing stuff like this. It, this is the kind of information, the behind the scenes wrestling history, I think listeners love and they hardly get the real, the real what was going on behind the scenes story. So uh, to me, that's what makes these studcasts so popular. So how about the TV show two days after the night you had fired Bob Roop and how about the card for Knoxville? Friday, June 1st, 1979. I'm anxious to see how all this was going to fall into place for you. Well, let's start with the card. Uh, the first match was Mr. Fuji, who was now in the Memphis territory. Uh, but on this night, he's going to be managed again by Ron Wright. He hadn't been over there for a couple, just a couple of weeks. Uh, and, uh, and he was going to be wrestling against Terry Gibbs. Uh, Dr. D, David Schultz, and Eddie Mansfield who had come out of the Gulf Coast. Both of them now were teamed up and a great team, by the way. They faced off against Ken Lucas and Dean Ho. Jimmy Golden, also in the Memphis Territory at this point. He's, a, he's, he's in there uh, that night, and uh, he's going to be wrestling against Kevin Sullivan. I was on the card against a great Malenko. And then in a bunkhouse match, uh, PAG match, uh, you know, that's where the contestants so wear Western boots, man, and use them on their opponents any way they wanted to. Mm -hmm. So everybody had boots on, man. And uh, the new champions, Dick Slater and Crusher Blackwell, and you can imagine being booted around by 450-pound <laughs> Crusher Blackwell. Uh, they met the former champions, Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr. The main event was a special two-out-of-three-fall Southeastern Championship match. The champion at this point was the new Russian, Alexis Smirnov. He was managed that night by the great Malenko against Ronnie Garvin, who was managed by Crusher Blackwell. All right. that's a To me, that's a pretty strong card, Ron, with all that was happening behind the closed doors and the whole situation. So what happened on the TV that set this card up? How was that? Well, Dick Slater and Crusher Blackwell got a win in the first television match of that day. Uh, Kevin Sullivan uh, won the second TV match. I was on the personality profile, uh, and uh, the reason was we had this tremendous Texas death match finish uh, in the two nights earlier. And uh, so uh, Les and I, and it was one of the only matches that was recorded. So uh, I took the personality profile with Les. And, uh, you know, uh, we sat there and watched this outrageous bump that, 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 uh, that, that Harley had taken at the end of the match where he dived headfirst through that table on the outside of the ring. Uh, that finish was the one of the best I have ever seen. And it, and it exploded the TV audience when they watched it happen again. You know, all of them, practically everybody came to TV, went to the matches uh, the night before. So they were, they were there two nights before 
They watched this happen then. And when they watched it on video, they reacted just like they did there. It's like, ooh, the whole studio goes, oh, <laughs> wow. Like they had never seen it. So I can only imagine what was happening in those thousands and thousands of homes out there. People watching this bump had no idea what was coming. <laughs> so David Schultz, Eddie Mansfield, they got a new, another win in the third match. And because it was the last week in the May rating book, uh, the last match was for the TV championship trophy. But Ronnie Garvin had won the trophy from Bob Root three weeks earlier in one of those matches in which Garvin put up his Southeastern belt, uh, uh, Root put up his TV trophy, and the winner of that match got both. Well, Garvin had won that match three weeks earlier. So Garvin was defending against the guy that was now the Southeastern champion, Alexis Smirnoff. And uh, Smirnoff had beaten him for the belt two weeks earlier. Uh, basically, it was a main event match on TV because it was rating period. So with outside interference, uh, you know, from the great Malenko, who, uh, you know, was there at the studio, <laughs> uh, wasn't on anything else, wasn't seen anywhere else. With that outside interference from great Malenko, uh, he was going to be in uh, Smirnoff's corner the following Friday night. Mm -hmm. uh, the TV trophy was won by Smirnoff. Okay, so, so now Garvin is no longer the TV champion. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So maybe I'm wrong, Ron, but I couldn't help but notice Bob Roop, Bob Orton Jr., and Ron Wright, were they not on this TV? Ronnie Garvin lost another title to the new Russian Alexei Smirnoff in addition to that. No, Dave. Uh, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. The five wrestlers planning to take over Southeastern were not a factor on this TV. Wonder why. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that the new booker was going to make some changes, or mm. maybe he wasn't even going to have to make any changes. Wow. <laughs> All right. So what happens on June 1st, 1979, Knoxville Coliseum? Mr. Fuji won his match against Terry Gibbs. Uh, David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield won over Ken Lucas and Dean Ho. Uh, Jimmy Golden and Kevin Sullivan had a match that was declared a no contest. Actually, uh, Jimmy got nasty, almost half heelish in this match with Kevin Sullivan. And uh, they got into a little brawl out there on the floor that nobody expected. And uh, they were both counted out. So it was a no contest match. I beat the great Malenko in, in my match. Uh, Dick Slater and Crusher Blackwell, uh, they got the best of Bob Root and Bob Orton Jr. in the bunkhouse match, man. And uh, wow, that was pretty nasty. I think about three out of the four of them were bleeding when that was over. Uh, and then in the main event, which was the best two out of three fall Southeastern Championship match, Ronnie Garvin regained the Southeastern belt with a win over Alexis Smirnoff. But this match was not supposed to have ended up that way with Garvin winning. So what happened is, uh, you know, each one of those guys won a fall. And then they went back for the third and deciding fall. And uh, Garvin uh, went for a pin on Smirnoff close to the Malenko's corner. And the referee started to count Smirnoff out. Uh, he was supposed to kick out. Smirnoff was going to kick out. Uh, he was going to win the match. But as the referee was about to count three, Smirnoff was about to kick out. Malenko jumped up in the edge of the ring and laid on top of his feet. The Russian couldn't kick out. <laughs> and the referee had to count him out. 
So Ronnie Garvin was awarded the Southeastern Belt. Now, that don't sound like much of, a, much of a deal, but that little mistake was going to come back to haunt me for the rest of the Knoxville War, man. And uh, I think I'll explain that next studcast because it, that's a pretty long explanation there. Okay. Uh, I got to hear that one. All right. So how about attendance then, Stud? How did you do that night as far as the crowd? Well, the crowd was down about 800 from the 5,100 that was there on that Texas death match card with Harley, which was amazing. That's the one I really, on a Thursday night, didn't expect we might do very well with, but we almost sold out the building again. So before we take the break, though, Dave, uh, and I think we're probably getting close, I've been thinking lately about how big and good our southeastern crews were before the war began. I want to talk about it now because everything is going to change uh, in these stud casts, especially concerning the talent, starting with the very next one, as a matter of fact. So I'd like to pay tribute to the total number of stars that we had at the end of May in 1979 as a company and recognize each one of those guys. So in the southeastern Knoxville territory was Alexis Smirnoff, Ronnie Garvin, Dick Slater, Crusher Blackwell, Bob Wharton Jr., Bob Root, the great Malenko, Kevin Sullivan, David Schultz, Eddie Mansfield, Ken Lucas, Dean Ho, Ron Wright, and Terry Gibbs. Now that's about as good a full-time 14-man crew as anybody in the country had. Oh, for sure. That, that's yeah. just in Knoxville. Wow. So, uh, Let's talk about who was in southeastern Gulf Coast. Obviously, it was Terry the Hulk Boulder, <laughs> Ox Baker, Alpha and Sika Anoy, the Samoans. Wow. Ricky Fields, Terry Latham, Ron Slinker, Austin Idol, the Gladiator, Dick Steinborn, Roy Lee Welch, Herb Calvert, the wrestling pro, Tarzan Baxter, <laughs> Billy Spears. And I got to throw in Bob Armstrong, who wasn't there, but by golly, he was always a part of that down there and uh you know i have to throw him in yeah. so that's a very good 15 man crew just about as good as anywhere in the country easily and and then to add to that i want to recognize those wrestlers that were in the memphis territory that we had sent there from southeastern and uh you know they had been all of those guys had at one time or another been southeastern stars before they went to memphis and we're talking about the Mongolian Stomper, Gorgeous George Jr., my brother, Robert, Tor Tanaka, Mr. Fuji, Jimmy Golden, Don Carson, the assassin Randy Colley, Rip Smith, Tony Charles, Buzz Sawyer, Punk Rock Wayne Ferris, Robert Gibson, and Mike Stalin. Fourteen more of the sports best. Wow. So, God. you know. That was a total of 43 great wrestlers that had been stars in the first five years of Southeastern Wrestling's existence mm. from 1975 through the middle of 1979. Wow. So, you know, uh, this studcast uh, is not only the record number of 300, but the total size of these three Southeastern crews was the largest number of wrestlers in Southeastern ever in its history, 43 guys in the first five years of that company. 
43, uh, probably I'd say uh, 80%, uh, some of the best in the country. Oh, no doubt. And and what folks may not remember is you loaned a bunch of these guys, as you mentioned, all the, the Memphis territory. Were those folks still working for you, but just on loan to Memphis? Well, they had, if you ask those guys, they they would all say, Ron, I'm working for you. <laughs> right. You know, they were actually working in the Memphis territory. Yeah. But uh, they were being handled by my brother as it had been for many, many years. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, nothing had changed between me and all those guys. You know, they considered themselves to be Southeastern people, yeah. not Memphis stars and uh, Memphis's territory people. So, uh, yeah, that's a good question, though. Yeah, they, they, their, uh, their allegiance was to Southeastern if there had been a problem. And yeah. uh, basically, we're going to get to that, too, as, as this goes by. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would think so. At their allegiance, they're trying to hang on to you, Ron. And listen, I'm glad you did that because that's really amazing. A who's who of professional wrestling. And what a great first part of this studcast. This is this is a good point to take a break. Let's do that. When we return, we're going to be headed south to a territory that is on fire, southeastern Gulf Coast. That is coming up when this Studcast continues. Hey, Studcast fans, Ron's Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel is just like his territories in 1979, on fire. New Ask the Stud 5 question and answer show is off to the best start yet for these historical wrestling gems of a show. The questions are absolutely astounding and his answers even more so. The only place you can find these is YouTube Southeastern Rewind. All you have to do is subscribe and they're free. Go to his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page, like him and follow him there. And you can even leave your own question there too. Subscribe, sit back and enjoy the ride. With the Tennessee Stud. All right, Studcast fans, after an eye opening part one of this Studcast, now we mount up again as we take a break and we ride into a Southeastern territory much different than the one we were just in in Knoxville. All right, so how does it feel, Stud, when we get down south compared to what was going on in Southeastern Knoxville? Had to be a whole different vibe. Well, man, it's it was like the difference between night and day, man. Mm. You know, man, uh, all that intrigue and drama going on up there in Knoxville was uh, replaced by the optimism and the and the, the laughter in the dressing rooms down south in southeastern Gulf Coast. Uh, Louis Tillet had done a masterful job in the southeastern Gulf Coast territory, especially compared to Bob Roof's partial destruction of what had been a phenomenal territory when I gave him the job since he had gotten the job. So this is going to be a lot of fun compared to the first part of this stud guest, uh, what we're going to get into here. So let's start the second part uh, by going back to the last Friday night card. Of May 25th, 1979, uh, it was the night I was supposed to be wrestling Harley Race for the NWA World Title Match. Mm -hmm. And I just want to kind of uh, remind fans of this because it will build toward what's going to happen in the rest of this studcast. So uh, maybe we should start with the match that was right before this world title match I was supposed to have. And uh, that match was the Hulk against the Continental Wrestling Federation champion, Thunderbolt Patterson. So Terry the Hulk Boulder, uh, and he made a point of, again, 
uh, he spears at him announced as as a sterling golden and again he stopped the announcer and said no sir you got to do it over i'm terry the hulk boulder mm-hmm. and uh, then he said spears back to the dressing room just like he had for the week before you know he said get out of here get your butt to the dressing room right so you know uh so, uh, but it didn't change the outcome, however, because uh, Spears came back to the ring just like he had the week before when Hulk was wrestling me, and uh, and Hulk had me beat, and I was in his uh, in his in his bear hug, and uh, and G- Spears wanted to hit me with a with a with a something in his fist, and uh, he made him drop the bear hug, put him into full Nelson, and then I ducked and bang, he hit the Hulk, and I beat the Hulk, so it caused Hulk to lose. So. Wow. In this match, again, this night, you know, I was watching this match because it was right before my match with the NWA champion, Harley. And uh, Hulk, uh, you know, uh, heel since his arrival in the Gulf Coast, uh, stood uh, stood at the huge uh, crowd, you know, stood. There was a huge crowd, man, all around me. And uh, and then when <laughs> when uh, the, the Crazy Billy comes back again and he has a uh, – Hulk's got uh, Patterson in his bear hug. Uh, Billy makes him drop the bear hug, and he goes to do something to him. And the second time in a row, uh, ends up getting Hulk beat. So, you know, so now the Hulk is really mad. Uh, You know, he sent him to the dressing room twice, two weeks in a row. He comes back, and he uh, changes. He makes Hulk do what he wants him to do, Mm. and it costs Hulk the match. Wow. So uh, Hulk. At this point, is he's just really right up in his face. And the people in the building are going nuts. They want him to do something, and he just reaches down and puts uh, Billy Spears in that bear hug. <laughs> and that building exploded. Man, I mean, they've been wanting to see that for a long time. So uh, the two giant Samoans, man, uh, Southeastern Tag Champions, uh, uh, they were in the back of the building back there, and they were watching the match like I was. So they see what's going on, and heck, they got to come save the Billy Spears. He's the Hawks guy. <laughs> He's crushing him. So, you know, the building was already on their feet, and, uh, boy, they exploded, man. Uh, when the two big boys got to the ring, Hulk just dropped, the, uh, dropped Spears, and uh, they came in, and he just started wailing on them big boys, man. I mean, he was kicking some butt. Wow. Uh, he was really holding his own, man, but uh, he hadn't considered that there's another bigger guy oh. in the dressing room, Ox Baker. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, Ox slides down to the ring and he sneaks in behind Hulk while Hulk is kicking butt and uh, and he nails him from behind. But once he does, then uh, he, Spears kind of gets back on his feet and all four of them start putting the boots to Hulk, man. Wow. In fact, they, they busted him open. They got him bleeding. First time I'd ever seen him bleed. That had to Probably be a, co- a combined – Oh, I'm sorry. That had to be a combined oh. weight. Two Samoans and one Ox Baker. How, how much do you think? Oh, God, man. Uh, 900 pounds. Oh, easy. Probably so. <laughs> wow. close to 1,000, right? Yeah, right. I mean, they're all over 300. Yeah. You know? God. So, so there, you know, there's there's over 1,000 pounds of, of humans uh, beating, stomping, hulking through the mat. Yeah. And then, they, yeah. and then he starts bleeding. So, you know, and Hulk and I had been rusting each other now for weeks, you know, and 
But, uh, you know, I can't stand there. I'm standing there and I'm trapped at this point. Uh, but then I wasn't really trapped because I wasn't going to watch four guys do that to him. I mean, you know, I can't let that happen. Mm. So I went to the ring, man, and the building, it got even louder. And uh, once I got there, I got I got them all four of them off of him. I threw uh, spears out into the floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then uh, Oxbaker finally managed to get around while I'm working on the other two, and he nailed me from behind. Now he kind of did the same thing he had done to the Hulk, except he went further with it. He got my left arm. He put it behind me. He reached around my body with his other hand, got that arm. And uh, then he hit me, man, with uh, what most wrestlers were describing in the dressing rooms. And when they talked about Ox Baker, they, they, he hit me with what they called the, the killer heart punch. Mm. And uh, mm. boy, my lights went out. Wow. I mean, he knocked me unconscious. So I went – uh, you know, and I, and I never, I still to this day think that, uh, you know, they should have never let him ever hit anybody after he'd hit those two guys that died. Wow. You know, so, uh, so several wrestlers of the, of the, of the baby faces, uh, you know, Ricky Fields and, and Terry Latham and, uh, you know, uh, uh, guys that were in the early matches came down to the ring and, uh, but a Hulk just pushed him aside. And he picked me up like I was a little baby, <laughs> literally. And uh, that building was just as crammed as it was for the Andre match about three weeks earlier, just wall to wall. And he carried me through the crowd back to the dressing room. So then uh, minutes later, Harley comes down to the ring. They ring the bell for the main event. And there he stands with his NWA belt uh, alone in the ring. And I wasn't able to go back and wrestle in the match. I just, uh, you know, got my stuff up half together again. And uh, mm-hmm. so I hear Race get on the microphone and he tells the crowd that he's willing to defend his belt against any man in the other dressing room and he'll let Ron Fuller pick him. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm standing there or, you know, at that point I'm on my feet and I look and there's the Hulk standing face to face with me. He's still bleeding. He's trying to get his, uh, get the desire to stop the blood. Yeah. And, uh, and the, you know, so, so Hulk, he look, I look at him, man, eye to eye, and, I, and I say, uh, you're, you got it, kid. Go beat Harley race. Wow. So, so, you know, well, so the crowd didn't know who was going to come. Mm-hmm. So when the Hulk came around the corner in that old building, big farm center, uh, that building stood up. God. I mean, wow. Uh, they they didn't expect the Hulk. He'd yeah. be the last one they would expect. So then um, Harley, Harley left the ring, and he took his belt, and he went back to the dressing room with it. Uh-huh. Then he came back to the ring without it, right? Uh-huh. And then he got the microphone again, and he refused to defend his belt against the Hulk because the Hulk's name's not on the contract. <laughs> I'm supposed to be wrestling Ron Fuller. Right, right. <laughs> so he changed his mind. I'll wrestle anybody for the belt that Ron picks. Yeah. And then he goes back and says, no, not you, basically. Yeah. <laughs> anybody yeah. but you. Yeah. You know? And it was a wise decision for, for, for race. Because, uh, you know, the overflow building, man, they're all on their feet at this point. And when they rang the bell, that building carried old Hulk, man. I mean, they got him all fired up. And uh, and then Hulk got Harley in his bear hood. 
And uh, Harley refused to submit. The referee raised his arm, and he kept it in there two or three times. And then finally, Harley passed out. His head fell on the Hulk's shoulder, and uh, he was he was gone. Referee picked his hand up three times, and it just fell. And uh, he rang the bell. He raised the Hulk's hand. Hulk had beaten the world champion, man. Wow. And the crowd carried Hulk back to the dressing room. <laughs> I'll never forget, man. You know, they got him on their shoulders, and, and uh, they just carried him out of there. Wow, what a scene it was. Okay, and I can't, I can't wait to hear where, because this is going to, I know this is going to pick up again. I can't wait to hear about that. All right, an incredible description of the events of the Friday before, Stud. That that night, uh, that night, all of this had been recorded and was going to be shown back the next day on TV, I, I think. So before you tell us about the TV show, can you give us that upcoming card for the next week for Montgomery, Mobile, and Dothan? Because the card was typically the same in all three markets, right? Yeah, yeah, most of the time it was. So, uh, all right, we're talking about the card that's going to be basically on June the 1st. Uh, uh, the same as the Knoxville card that's going on up north. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the opening match uh, had two newcomers in it. It had a kid named Ken Griffin, a uh, pretty nice-looking kid and, uh, you know, pretty good wrestler. But he was wrestling against, man, one half of the greatest, one of the greatest tag teams ever. He was wrestling against one of those world-famous Infernos, man. So, uh, you know, the, we had another good heel that had arrived. Mm -hmm. Herb Calvert was still accepting challenges for his $500. And, you know, if anybody beat him, they'd get the $500. And then he was going to be facing Eddie Sullivan, managed by Billy Spears. Uh, Roy Lee Welch was going to be taking on the Gladiator, who was managed by Billy Spears. Uh, then the Southeastern, Ron Slinker was going to be defending his Southeastern belt against Austin Idol. Uh, the, and, uh, wow, Idol was been there about two weeks and wow, was he getting over? He was really, really getting over fast. Wow. Wow. The Southeastern tag belts were on the line. The champions of Samoans against there again, managed by Billy Spears were against a uh, man, that really popular team, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, man. Fans just never turned on them. Fans always wanted to see it. They didn't care if they <laughs> lost all of them. I don't ever understood how they were over that good. <laughs> then the main event was uh, two of the sport's biggest competitors, man. You got the six foot, eight inch, 300 pound Terry the Hulk Boulder against the six foot, six inch, 330 pound Ox Baker. All right. That's, a, that's an incredible card. And the first time the Hulk would be seen as a baby face. All right. You had flown out the morning of this TV to be in Knoxville for Dick Slater's first TV show as the new Knoxville booker. So I know both Charlie Platt and Louie Tillette told you what happened on the Gulf Coast TV show Saturday, May 26, 1979. Oh, yeah, you can back on it, man. I mean, uh, you know, as soon as it was over, man, uh, I got to talk to both of them. So after the Harley and Hulk match was over, uh, and the dressing room cleared. This is on the the uh, the night before that I left to fly out. Uh, Louie and I had a sit, had a chance to talk. Uh, the dressing room was all, nobody there but Louie and I, and we talked about the Gulf Coast TV show, the one he was going to do the next morning, the next day. 
And, uh, and then after we finished talking about that, I told him about what Dick Slater had found out and what was going on in Knoxville. He was, um, he was just uh, blown away. It's like, Ron, mm. it's unbelievable. You can't, you can't be telling the truth, right? Wow. You know, but, uh, you know, and I told him, you know, under the circumstances, obviously, uh, Louis, you need not expect me to come back down here for a while. Mm. You know, I think yeah. I'm going to be hooked up, up uh, down the, you know, up there to, to try to save my territory. Right. Yeah. So, and he understood just as I did, uh, how important. And then at the last we talked about, the last thing we talked about the TV is is putting something good on it, something really good on it. So and he understood the importance of that because it's a, during the TV rating period. So, uh, you know, uh, so here's what happened on the next TV the next day uh, while I was back in Knoxville. Uh, Charlie Platt uh, told me that the, the TV studio First, he said it was packed, Ron. He goes, you could, he said, three times more people was turned away from the studio than could fit in there. Wow. You know, because that huge, because the, 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 everything was so hot at this point. You had the Hulk and you had Andre, you've had these big, huge crowds. And uh, now they're coming to fill the studio just like they were filling the building. So the Gulf Coast show uh, had, TV show had two championship matches on it. Uh, it opened up with one and it closed with one. The first match, championship match, was a TV championship and a trophy match because the new ch- uh, champion, the new TV ch- champion, and they brought his trophy in was the Gladiator, managed by Billy Spears, and uh, he was in the ring against the newcomer Ken Griffin. And Louis told me, you know, later that uh, Griffin looked really good in the match. He was he was going to be good. He was going to. He was going to do a good job there, but it, but he certainly wasn't equal to Dick Steinborn, man, who was the gladiator under the mask. I mean, Steinborn was one of the great workers ever. Uh, then the second match featured the, the powerful Southeastern tag champions, man, the big Samoans, managed by Billy Spears. Ricky Fields and uh, Terry Latham uh, set with Charlie at the set. They talked about how powerful these Pacific wrestlers, they like they called them the Pacific wrestlers because these guys were related to the to the Rock. Yeah, man. they yeah. are in the Rock's family, you know, in that bloodline. Yeah, and you know, they talked about how big these guys were and how tough they were and how strong they were, and then uh, they ended up by making a bunch of jokes with Charlie Platt about. Uh, the mama boy manager, Billy Spears, you know, <laughs> too bad. They got a mama boy manager. You know? <laughs> It'd be great if they had somebody else, right? Even better. So the personality profile was done live. And Charlie's guest obviously was the new Southeastern star, Harry, the Hulk Boulder. And, uh, when he came out of the dressing room to go to the set, Charlie said that studio went crazy, man. He's like, wow. He said he'd never seen anybody get over like that. He was really, really on fire. And uh, so uh, uh, Hulk, you know, uh, was uh, patched up because he had, he had been bleeding. The first time he'd ever bled was the night before. And uh, so uh, he sat there with a patched up eye, and uh, he watched this historic video from the night before it was truly a historic video i mean you know he, he so and it started uh, 
after his championship match with Thunderbolt Patterson, and he had the argument with Spears, and then it showed him get the bear hug on Spears. It showed the Samoans come to the ring. It showed Ox Baker get him from behind. It showed, uh, you know, me getting down there and Ox getting me and giving me the heart shot. It, wow, it was a tremendous video, man. And uh, and it carried, uh, you know, uh, then it showed the Hulk uh, carrying me back through the massive crowd, back to the dressing room. Wow. Charlie said the studio was erupting, man, during the profile so often mm-hmm. and so loud, he said he couldn't hear the Hulk's responses. They couldn't hardly talk because they're sitting right there next to one set of those bleachers. Yeah, yeah. So, so when the second video started, Harley Race was already in the Hulk's bear hug. They went ahead then and showed the piece of Harley's match. And uh, it showed the Hulk with the bear <laughs> hug on him. Uh, and Charlie said he had to wait for the TV's crowd response to die before he could ask Terry hardly anything about how that felt wow. to have to, to do do to do accomplish what he'd done. Then Charlie finished the profile by saying the you know the Hulk was now the uncrowned world champion. Wow. Basically he was. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He didn't yeah. have the belt, but he had obviously beat the world champion with his bear hug. I remember watching this TV show at this point in time, I was just getting into broadcasting and so I wasn't always able to go to the matches, but I definitely remember this TV show and Charlie saying exactly that. In fact, he mentioned it on almost every TV show, you know, Charlie for a couple of months after that, just as a reminder until Hulk finally got a real shot at Harley's belt. Well, you know, I doubt any wrestler in history, Dave, ever got a better buildup for a world title match and a rematch with the world champion than what Terry, <laughs> Terry Boulder got yeah. that night, yeah. uh, the night before this TV. So Harley put him over right in the middle of the ring, man. And two months later, they're going to meet again in a football stadium. This time, no building's going to hold it. It's too mm-hmm. big for anything in Dothan. And, uh, that, uh, you know, it, it's going to barely, uh, it's barely going to then the football stadium's barely going to hold all the fans. Going to be a tremendous, uh, tremendous event. Mm. But the profile didn't end with that. You know, uh, Charlie asked the Hulk, you know, uh, what his feelings were about his upcoming match with that big monster, Oscar Baker. And uh, then that left, the, you know, uh, you know, that that left the me unconscious the night before and the worldwide reputation of being a a possible killer of wrestlers. I mean, there was a little discussion at the very end of this that was going to cover this upcoming match, the first one ever between the Hulk and Ops Baker. So, um, you know, uh, Charlie said uh, Terry answered very well everything they had asked him. For, he knew, said, for someone, he told me, he said, Ron, for a guy that had been not been doing his own interviews because uh, Billy Spears did all his talking, he said, uh, he was unbelievable. And he said, I asked him about all this, about what are you going to do about Ox Baker and all of that, and uh, are you scared, basically, a little bit of that. And he and he said he said something like, you know, I know it was a tough sport before I ever got into it, and that people sometimes get hurt and sometimes very bad. But, he, you know, he said, but pain goes both directions. He said, I'm, you know, he's probably going to give me some pain, but <laughs> when I get him in my bear hug, <laughs> He said, I can't imagine him being any tougher than Harley Race. 
And everybody just saw how I beat the NWA world champion. So <laughs> I think I can beat Ox Baker. Wow. Well, I remember after that interview was over, my first thought was this guy is going to be one of the most famous wrestlers ever in Southeastern Gulf Coast. And not to mention, uh, I had no idea he would eventually become a Hall of Famer, but we should have all known. I believe in the next 10 years or so, he turned out to be much, much bigger than even that. So how about the next match immediately after that very important profile? Well, man, what do you do after that? Uh, you yeah. bring the monster himself to the ring. <laughs> exactly. <man. laughs> you no, know, yeah. I mean, uh, you, you're talking about the 6'6", 330-pound ox breaker. Wow, and was he ugly. I mean, he was scary, you know. So it didn't take long, man, for him to annihilate a young wrestler. Charlie says, Ron, I felt so sorry for the kid. He said he must have kicked him in the face five times and, you know, and uh, so – you know, and that was one of Ox's first television matches. So what a what an impact he made, man. Uh, you know, and, and he said, uh, well, he really, truly looked like one of the most fearsome men on earth. So the TV closed with another championship match, okay? It had opened with a championship match, and it closed with one. And in this one, the Southeastern champion, Ron Slinker, mm -hmm. was defending against one of Billy Spears' men, Eddie Sullivan. Uh, so Austin Idol was on this card that was coming up to get his first chance at the Southeastern title. But, uh, you know, Austin was, a, I mean, he was, a, he was, he, you didn't do, you didn't control Austin Idol very much and he couldn't wait to get his normal shot. So during this match between Slinker and Eddie Sullivan, Austin Idol just hit the ring. He threw Sullivan out of the ring and he put his figure four leg lock on, on Slink. <laughs> All right. I mean, so, and, there, you know, obviously the referee stopped the match. And, you know, he raised, uh, he raised Slinker's hand. Uh, you know, he disqualified, uh, uh, <laughs> he disqualified Spears and his man. But Idol didn't care. Idol was, he, was a, he was a lunatic sometimes. And so the show ended with Idol and Slinker, man, uh, with an interview. Slinker's mad, you know. He goes, well, who you, what kind of guy are you to sneak in the ring, you know? And uh, Idol says, I don't, basically, I don't care, man. You, you're going to get beat. I'm getting that belt. So <laughs> yeah. that, that was a great show. Hey, I tell you what, I know it ended as a great TV show following an incredible night of matches from the night before, especially. So how about the card you gave us earlier Did it made its rounds the, the following week, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, the new Inferno, man, he got his win, you know, uh, and his first win over over Ken Griffin. Uh, Herb Calvert, who had beaten every challenger from the audience for months, none of them man, had ever gone close to winning, you know. Uh, and uh, he didn't have any challengers at all for the entire week. You know? So Herb had convinced everybody that, you know, there's no need in going up there and getting in the ring with that guy. You're not going to win. So, and then after it was over, he went on, he extended his winning streak. He beat Eddie Sullivan in all three of the cities. Then the Gladiator got another win over Roy Lee Welch, which he had several of them over Roy. Uh, and then in the Southeastern Championship match between the champion Ron Slinker and Austin Idol, 
Idol got himself disqualified, man. He just got too crazy. You know, uh, he did something that, so outlandish that the referee just uh, rang the bell. He said, that's it. You're no more. And uh, so, you know, Idol did not get the belt. Uh, so Southeastern Tag Champions, the Samoans, managed by Billy Spears, they won again against Fields and Lathan. And again, in all three cities, the fans didn't care. They gave Fields and Latham a standing ovation at the <laughs> end of every one of those matches. Wow. So the main event was the wild one, man, of the night. Hawksbaker, obviously managed by Billy Spears and uh, Terry Boulder. Uh, both of them got carried away, man. And uh, not only did they knock the referee down, but they knocked the referee out cold. And uh, so there was nobody out there. They were going at it. The referee was laying off to the side of the ring. And uh, and the wrestlers started coming from both dressing rooms. They the wrestlers are going to have to stop these. If that, if that happens, that's the only mm-hmm. thing that, that can happen that, that can stop it. So both dressing rooms came down to the ring and they, they kind of pulled them apart. But, uh, next week, uh, they were going to be coming back. Same two ox against uh, <laughs> Boulder. Uh, but this time we're going to have the wrestlers at the ring before they start the match. They have a lumberjack match. Yeah, there you go. Do you remember, was it was it Larry Brock, the referee, at the time? Yes. Yes, did, sir. Did you take him, did he go to Montgomery and Mobile for matches? Did he do those also? He went and did a lot of the Montgomery matches. He did some Mobile matches as well. Larry Brock is going to, that's great that you brought him up, Dave. Uh, you probably don't know this, but Larry Brock is going to get into an angle in Montgomery in which He's going to uh, be involved in oh. in a match, in a couple of matches in in Montgomery. Wow. So, okay. So uh, you know, Larry Brock was one of the greatest referees in the business, and uh, wow, he wasn't just a great referee. He could have been a great. He could have been a little star, man. Yeah, he, he, and he's so much fun to be around. He's just a fun guy. Uh, I've been friends with his sons for a long time, and I see I, we talk occasionally on Facebook. But Larry's a Larry's a great guy. He's retired, obviously. Anyway, listen, this sounds like another great night for fans. So what about attendance in all three major cities for the Hulk's first night as a baby face? Okay, well, this is pretty cool. I mean, you know, Knoxville was like, uh, you know, uh, uh, considerably down uh, just uh, just uh, in the in the in the fours. Uh, Montgomery had four thousand three hundred people. Uh, Mobile sold out Expo Hall, and they turned away. Uh, Roy told me they probably turned away uh, two thousand at least. Wow! It had fifty six hundred. That's what that building would hold. It had fifty six hundred, and uh, some nights when fire marshal wasn't there, you <laughs> might get it to fifty eight or something. But uh, that was really wall to wall in that building. It reminds me and, of stories. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and then Dothan finished with fifty two hundred. Man. Another 5,000 plus. Wow. When you're talking about turning fans away, it goes back to, to, to me, to Studcast from years ago, where, the, where your father was booking such matches, and your grandfather even, maybe in baseball stadiums where hundreds or thousands were lined up down the streets that would be turned away. So that's, a, to, me, to me, there you go again, uh, following in those footsteps. All right, Ron, so you just keep on doing it week after week. I get the feeling the Tennessee territory was about to explode, maybe in a bad way, and the Gulf Coast territory 
definitely in a good way. I really love these studcasts. Absolutely a ton of fun. So, uh, you know, uh, speaking of loving it, Dave, uh, that's exactly what's happening, man. Uh, on my Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel, uh, fans have fallen in love with these Ask the Stud question and answer shows. And uh, I bring this up because, you know, uh, this is the fifth one that I put out there now, and uh, they're all over an hour long, and uh, they're filled with uh, all kinds of historic answers for fans from everywhere, literally in the country and outside the country. And uh, so on my last one, I forgot to mention the date of the next one. So so I, I wanted to make a point here toward the end of this show that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to give – so it's a good time for me to get in the next – uh, for for Asta Stud number six, it's going to be in the month of June. They're always on the third Saturday in the month, these question and answer shows. Yeah. And the next one's going to be on Saturday, June 17th. All right, June 17th, that's a Saturday, and we'll try to remind folks as we get closer. And since you brought it up, fans loving something, guess what we have time for today? Oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> We got time for a learning tree question, man? Even after all this. Yeah, we do. And here it is. This one comes from India. That's right. Ron, (laughs) definitely. Calcutta, India. I had no idea that they could hear your stud cast in India of all places. All right. Well, well, yeah, but you you know why that is, Dave? Why is that? YouTube is a global network. Well, yes, of course. You know, and now every stud cast is on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind. So we're seen basically around the world. That's a, that's a, that's amazing. So Southeastern Rewind really is obviously your home for stud cast and everything else that is a stud. All right. So I can't believe we're going to be, we're, we're being heard around the world like this. I knew that you had listeners in Australia. So now from Calcutta, India, Sapan, Saxvinia, and I, I know I'm butchered that, and I apologize, but he says, you may be surprised to know, but many here in India follow you. Why is it that your wrestlers don't seem to be happy when they are, yet want to take control rather than just leave? Yeah, wow, what a good question. I mean, uh, I mean, so, yeah, I understand real quickly here, uh, Mr. Sapan, uh, what a great, what a, what a name, and yep. Mr. Sapan, I believe that was his first name, uh, you know, yeah, they weren't happy, you know, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I think, uh, you know, I appreciate you contacting me, first of all, Mr. Sapan, uh, you know, and, and I also appreciate you're getting right to the point, man, and, uh, and that's a great question, and, uh, and when I'm unhappy, you know, and, and I think about this, you know, my wrestlers were unhappy. A few of them, uh, they didn't have reason to be, in my in my opinion, you know. But uh, why didn't they just leave? I mean, wow, you cut to the point, sir. You know, I mean, that's that's great, you know. And uh, so, you know, and I thought, and you know, when I'm unhappy, Dave, you know, and uh, with something or somebody, you know, like maybe a meal at a restaurant, mm-hmm. you know. I don't try to go back and take control of the kitchen or, or take over the business, right. right? Because of it. I simply walk away and I don't go back to the restaurant again. So, you know, I mean, uh, that's kind of thing what Mr. Sapan is saying here in a way. So obviously, uh, Mr. Sapan, 
you grasp the simplicity of this situation very well. <laughs> Normally, you know, that was the way unhappy wrestlers left territories. That's the way it was usually done. If they didn't like it. They simply found another territory to work in and they left. So my situation was different because of mostly one wrestler out of these five. And at least one of those wrestlers, uh, he, he didn't seem to be happy, uh, as you put it, was not like the other four, though. Yeah, I think he had a reason, man, for being uh, far beyond what the other four did. You know, it, and it was going to be his second try. This is, a, I don't think we've talked about this, Dave. It was going to be Bob Roop's second try to steal someone's business. It wasn't, I wasn't the first. I didn't know that and, until it happened. It was too late, you know, but so the ringleader, Mr. Sapon, Bob Roop, other than uh, just being greedy, uh, wanting to own his own territory, I believe was also jealous, man, kind of jealous of what I had accomplished. You know, I think the others would, without Roop's influence, if there hadn't been for Bob Roop's influence, I don't think that they would have taken the time. They would have thought about it and really considered what how they'd been treated since they'd been there and the success they'd had working with me. And I don't think they would have never done this at all had it not been for Bob Roop. I think Bob Roop, who was wrestling in the Florida Territory long before I got there mm -hmm. and uh, long after I left, actually, was extremely jealous of what I had done with my life in the four years since he had seen me. I had not I've seen him in four years. He comes, I don't have just one territory. I got two territories, you know. So he was after more than, uh, at, after more than 10 years in the business, he was still just a wrestler and one with a bad attitude who never believed he was getting paid as much as he should be. So he allowed himself to let those beliefs affect his future, uh, you know, and uh, I'm not making excuses for him, but uh, he was basically unwilling to risk his financial future. That's basically what I did. He wasn't willing to risk his financial future to purchase somebody's territory, which is a way, uh, a man's way of doing things, mm -hmm. you know, uh, mm -hmm. but, and then try to make a go of it himself, you know, uh, he would rather steal the business. Okay, you know, in this case, the territory. So yeah. many out there, as I mentioned, probably not aware, and I didn't find out until it was too late that this wasn't Bob Roop's first shot at stealing a territory where he was the booker, and he had pinned the booker at Roy Shire's territory in San Francisco about two years earlier before my territory, and, uh, and he tried to steal that. So the bad part for Roop was the fact uh, that mine – my territory was his second attempt to steal one, and it was uh, didn't it also ended up in failure, just like the first time he tried to steal one. So I basically think, uh, you know, Mr. Sapanda, the good Lord blesses those that work hard, make good things happen, and uh, and I think He punishes those that uh, don't think that, don't do things like a man should. Mm. You know, I think that's probably the best explanation of the Knoxville war that I've, that I've heard so far. I mean, it, it, simply put, I think that's it. So each one of these stud casts leave us with something special, something special every week. So I think you did that again today, Ron. All right. How about next week? A few words, uh, a few words about where we're writing next week. 
Okay, uh, southeastern Knoxville is going to begin to heat up, man, uh, as the 1979 summer uh, comes comes upon us uh, on the next cast. <clears throat> Bob, the Roop Troop going to make their first move, man. Uh, they, everything's been fine in this this stud cast. They went out, they did their thing in the ring. Uh, they except for the last match, they didn't do anything that was that they shouldn't have. Uh, so five wrestlers, uh, the next are booked on the next show, but uh, none of them are going to sh- going to be at the Coliseum for the event they were going to be publicized on. Uh, but they are going to be there, but they're going to buy tickets, and uh, they're going to sit in the crowd. They're going to try to promote their future product. They're going to try to intimidate and adversely affect the matches of a company that provided all five of them with a very good living since the day they came there. And uh, it was just the beginning of the worst summer of my life, man. And uh, men who I thought were my friends decided to try and steal what I built. And it's a sad story. That'll play out and over the next few months. And ultimately, it's going to end with the fans being the losers. Uh, Southeastern mm-hmm. Gulf Coast, down there, everything was on a roll. We'll talk about that. Hook was getting over even stronger as a star. And uh, Ox Baker and Austin Idol were really getting hotter as heels. And one of the great national stars, big time, international star, basically, Bobo Brazil, is going to make his first appearance in Southeastern Gulf Coast. Uh, there's going to be a new tag team. The Dargon Twins are going to join in. It's going to become the territory that keeps me in professional wrestling and develops into the smartest move I made in wrestling with the buy of the Gulf Coast territory. Wow. That's awesome. Can't wait. And Studcast, again, they're all at TNStud. Whether you're listening to this one or the first one or the 100th or the 200th, this is number 300, by the way. Hey, listen, folks, go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. You can like and follow him there to become friends with a legend. On Twitter, same thing. Find him on Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch. Follow him there, too. Check out the website, tnstud.com, for every studcast ever done. 43 super studcasts. Regular studcasts like this would usually average an hour or maybe a little more. Super studcast up to three hours. And of course, the stud store is there too at tnstud.com. All kinds of souvenirs. Get your personally autographed copy of Ron's novel called Brutus. It is there as well. The YouTube channel, as we mentioned, Southeastern Rewind, it is red hot. Close to 300 hours of videos there now. At least 80 studcasts, 52 stud stories. 37 short rides with the stud and five ask the stud question and answer shows subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern rewind YouTube Southeastern rewind is the gateway to classic continental wrestling.com classic continental wrestling.com the studs tremendous streaming channel now more than 250 hours of classic wrestling entertainment Gulf Coast Southeastern continental and USA TV shows all in the order of which they were recorded. That's the way it's meant to be. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com Plus, 19 chapters of Ron's audio version in Ron's voice of his best-selling lion novel, Brutus. Six stars of the sport, four superstars of the past, and documentaries 
with something new every day. All this $4.99 a month or $39.99 per year, plus the free one-week trial still available. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It is the best deal in wrestling. Any final words, Stud? Yeah, man. Uh, obviously, I'd like to thank everybody for listening today. I uh, hope everybody out there have enjoyed it. And uh, please take care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.